0: morning, let's go ahead and look to the Lord's Prayer, and uh, let's pray together as we do each and every week. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Job. And today I want to talk to you about a pretty difficult topic. And uh, It's probably not one of those that you woke up on a Sunday morning and you thought, man, I can't wait to come to the house of God so that I can be taught to about how to mourn properly, right? Um, It's just not a a thrilling topic, Uh, but a few weeks ago, I I, I believe I heard the voice of the Lord speak how incredibly important this was, if not for some of us who were in the season but for the future, some of us who may go through different seasons. So I'm going to ask you this morning, uh, like I said, it's not, you know, something that you get really enthralled about. This is what I'm going to ask today. I'm going to ask that you would go ahead and make the pre-decision to engage in the scripture today. Okay. You realize that in the same way when we, when we come together uh, for worship that when we lift our voices together, we are lifting our voices in agreement. And you can tell when you step into the sanctuary and worship is already happening and the people of God are lifting their voice in agreement, there's a spiritual dynamic at play. You can sense it, you can feel it. The reality is, is that that's true even during the preaching of God's word, okay? And so this is why you'll have people, uh, sometimes you'll hear a good hearty, amen. Right? Or you'll hear somebody say, oh, that's good. Or you'll hear a number of other things. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. Okay? I'm going to ask you to, when the Lord speaks to you in in a moment or just something that just resonates with your soul, I'm going to ask you this morning to give me a good old hearty amen. Or I'm going to ask you to give me a, ooh, that's good. (laughs) All right? I'm going to ask you to give me a, mmm, pastor. Okay? I'm going to ask you to go ahead and just choose to engage because when there is verbal engagement, there is a spiritual dynamic at play. This is a part of the community of God. So let's go ahead and practice, get you out of your comfort zone. Now, you got to be careful because you don't want to say amen at the wrong moment. Okay? You don't want me to say something about, and David murdered Bathsheba's husband and had sex with Bathsheba. You don't want to say amen at that moment. Okay? Because the word amen is, I'm coming into agreement with what you're saying. Okay? So, Be discerning, okay? Um, But there are moments where I say, man, God is so good, and you say, amen. Amen. Because you're saying, yes, I want the goodness of God in my life. I receive that. So um, this morning, we're going to be talking about mourning. Uh, So I just want to go ahead and prepare your hearts, you know, to that end. We're going to be in the book of Job this morning. We're going to read the entire first chapter. And we're not going to spend all of our time you know, dissecting this chapter, but I want to see Job kind of as this example for us in how he handled loss and how he moved through that loss. When we pick up in Job, what what we believe is we're somewhere, we're definitely in ancient history, but we believe that if the events of Job were recorded in the book of Genesis, that it would fall somewhere around chapter 17 or 18. Okay, so it's definitely an ancient time. But Job, we don't know a lot about his history, but we know that he has shown up on the scene. He's an incredible man of God. And he is going, or he is about to go through a real season of testing. And we're going to read together. So if you have your notes or your Bible or on the screen. We're in Job chapter 1. The Bible says, In the land of Uz there there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. He was was constantly trying to cover his children. So one day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Well, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his entire household and all that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands. So that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's saying, look, of course he's upright and blameless. You've not only blessed him, but you've protected everything that he has. But I'm telling you this, if you test him and you allow him to experience loss, surely he'll turn to you and curse you. But the Lord said to Satan... Very well, then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. Who has escaped to tell you?" And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, "Your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you." Now at this, Job got up, he tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell down to the ground in worship, and he said, naked from my mother's womb have I come, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. what seems like an incredibly unfortunate chain of events, Job has just lost almost everything. In a matter of moments, he's lost his children, his servants, people that were dear to him. He's lost possessions. He's lost financial income. He's, we find in chapter 2 that Joe ends up losing his health and Job, in the midst of all this loss, what we find is that he loses all of this in Job chapter 1, and then for the next 41 chapters of the book of Job, we find Job mourning and processing his losses so that he can step in to the future that God has for him. Now, Again, we're not going to focus on Job today specifically, but I think Job serves as a a great example in a macro sense that Job experienced tremendous loss and he handled it well so that he could lead into what was to come. But I do think there are a few theological takeaways that I just want to run through very, very quickly. Five things just very, very quickly that we learn from Job. Number one is this, is that what Job reminds us is that bad things do not happen to good people. We hear that saying all the time, well, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? That's not the case. Well, why do bad things happen to bad people? That's not the case. Bad things happen to all people. That's the case. Job is the example for us because he was such an upright and a blameless man. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It means he was filled with integrity. He was an upstanding citizen and a man who loved God. So, It it helps us remember, in my suffering, I'm not the only person who's ever suffered, right? Though it may seem that way, and I don't want to take away from that, but it's not reality. So we remember that bad things happen to all people, okay? We also are reminded in Job that when we experience loss, that God is deeply aware, and he is ever-present with us. He is Emmanuel, not just the God of the heavens, but the God who is with us, the God who is within us in every situation for better or for worse. Number three, in my loss, I'm reminded by Job that Satan, though he has power, it's very limited. Number four, we're reminded by Job that in my loss, I remember how important good theology is. Job's friends that we'll talk about in a little while, as caring and concerned as they appear to be, had horrible theology. And it wrecked Job as he was trying to process his losses. And then finally, number five, in my loss, I'm reminded by Job, how important having the right community around me is. Now, when we speak about mourning, we usually, immediately, our minds go to the, to the loss of a loved one. We usually think about death when we think about mourning. This morning, I don't necessarily, like every, some things that I say are going to apply to the death of a loved one, but that's not the area that I want to camp out today. I feel like the death of a loved one, that is deserving of its own sermon in and of itself because it's, it's so sensitive, it's so delicate, and, and that just kind of is in a different category. There's another category of things that I want to focus on today, which relates to the loss or the death of certain elements in our life. For instance, in a room this size, there are surely people who have lost certain dreams that they have for the future. There are people that have lost hopes for the way that they thought things would work out, whether marriage or different events in life. There are people that have lost relationships. There are people that have lost careers, There are these type of losses, and and I I need to say this. I'm not naive to the fact that these types of losses are not the same as the loss of a death, okay, or uh, the death of a loved one, okay? They're not the same thing. That's why this needs its own sermon, okay? But we cannot be um, to a place where we look at these things and we just dismiss them because they're not things that possess an eternal soul. These things can have a devastating effect on your life, if when you lose those things, they're not processed and mourned through in the proper way. And so today, all I wanna talk about, all I wanna talk about is the reality that you already know that when we experience loss uh, in a myriad of ways that we must process and mourn through those losses so that we can embrace what is to come. So. To illustrate this idea, I'm going to tell you a very long story, okay? And if you find yourself nodding off or getting bored, just kind of, amen, that's good. Yeah, just do that. You'll be fine. I promise it'll wake you right up. All right. My wife, Joy, and I got married when we were 19, and we felt the call of God on our lives for for vocational ministry. I, I felt that God had called us to pastoral ministry. And we served at our local church. We volunteered in the youth ministry. We taught Sunday school. I was an elder on the board. Um, We we served our hearts out all the while looking for God to open a door for ministry somewhere. And a couple of years into this, um, we got a phone call from a church in Panama City, Florida. And it was a phenomenal church. It was well known throughout the district. Um, especially in the, in the early 2000s, um, in, in West Florida to have a church that had 500 people a part of it was an enormous church. And, and it still is. I'm just saying even years ago, it was much more of a thing than it even is today. And we get a call from this church and that pastor took an enormous risk to hire Joy and I. They offer us the youth pastor. It was a church, like I said, of hundreds of people. Their youth ministry had over 100 students in it. Joy and I had never pastored before. We had zero experience. We had zero experience it, it, definitely at that level. We had no formal education. I mean, it was it was an enormous risk, but the pastor just said, I, I understand. I mean, I was very upfront. I was like, look, we don't have this, this, and this, Okay. But the pastor was so good to us, and he just said, I, I realize that, but I believe that it's the will of God. And so we we were all about that. And so we we took this opportunity. And for the next nine years, we served that church and we poured our lives into that church. Um, you know, when you when you go into a first uh, ministerial opportunity. It's, it's really unique because especially when you're young, you begin to experience so many firsts. There, there are so many things that you have a first experience with. It was our, our first youth ministry. It was our first flock. It was our first group of people. Um, it was our first, you know, uh, uh, set of like, you know, ever growing mistakes that shall not be named today. But, but I mean, we were just, you know, I would make mistakes left and right. I would, you know, I was 22 and I was dealing with a teenager and trying to tell a 48 year old, uh, you know, mom and dad, how they should be raising their children. That was not wise, not good. Um, just all kind of mistakes, all these kind of things. But, man, we, we, we were experiencing like a move of God. There were, there were students that were getting saved in the ministry. By the time, you know, we had been there for nine years, like 85% of the students that were a part of our ministry were not connected in any way to the church family. They didn't have parents that attended the church. They were from the community. And just, man, God was just moving powerfully. Kids were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. There were experiences with God there was community that was being formed it was powerful 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 stuff and there were so many good things that 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 I still treasure to this day man that was the season where I really learned to pray I really learned to preach. I really learned what it means to contend for the souls of people and the, the maturation of the body and to really care for, for uh, people other than, than just my blood relatives. It was an incredible experience in so many positive ways. But how many of you know that we don't grow and become who we are just through positive experiences, right? If you only experience the good, maybe you are never going to become everything that you're intended to be. There is a a forging, there is something that's developed in us when we experience the good, but also when we go through incredible difficulty, there's something that develops within us that would not develop if we didn't have both and. And as good as the experiences were at this wonderful church, the negative experiences were were right there, you know, in, in equal part. Um, when we had been in the church about five years, the church went through a split. And when I say split, I mean a legitimate split, like half. You know, we lost like half of the people at the church. It wasn't anything to do with Joy and I or our ministry. It was just higher level, you know, political uh, drama. And um, that, for the better part of two or three years, we went through this incredibly difficult time. And, you know, this when I say church split, I mean, the church is well beyond that now, and they are, they are healthy and good and growing and everything. I'm speaking of a past situation, but, you know, there would be moments where we would have, you know, uh, church-wide meetings, business meetings, and, and uh, you know, somebody would stand up and begin yelling at somebody on the on the other side of the church and just... You know, I had, I had leaders that would try to come to me and try to get me to turn on the, on the lead pastor. and if, I mean, just incredible dysfunction. Loyalties um, were, were definitely questioned during that season. Ethics were formed in us as far as how, what is the right way to do things ethically and before the Lord to honor God. I mean, just on and on and on. There were in, incredible difficulties and incredible losses during that season. Now, after those first nine years, um, again, the split, the difficulty happened right, right about in the middle. In the spring of 2011, we found ourselves in a place where the church had, had healed from that. I mean, we were moving forward, every, all the drama was done, and we were kind of moving forward for a couple of years at that point. And in the spring of 2011, uh, I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine that, that you all know as Pastor Darren, okay? Okay and he was serving here at, at Christian Life, and he called. We had met each other in Atlanta a few years before and uh, forged a friendship, and he had called me. He said, hey, listen, um, we have an opening coming up for uh, a youth pastor, and we wanted to see if you enjoy maybe interested in, uh, you know, interviewing for the position, and so I was, I was super honored, and I said, Thank you so much. Let me, let me talk to my wife. Let's put some prayer to it and we'll go. So hang up the phone. I go, I talk to my wife, explain to her what's going on. And she's like, oh, wow, this seems, you know, incredible, you know, whatever. And so um, I then turn and I go to the Lord and pray. I pray for about four and a half seconds. And then I go back to PD and I say, uh, I say, PD, I just, man, there's so much here. There's so much history. We're so bound to the people here. Um, although I'm flattered, I'm so honored that, that you would consider us, um, we're going to pass. We're going to pass on this. And so he said, okay, I understand. I get it. We just want the will of God for you, you know, whatever. So a few weeks go by, two, three weeks go by, and I'm, I'm just disturbed in, in my spirit, man, in my mind, emotionally. I'm just all over the place, and I'm having these conversations with joy. I'm like, baby, did we just miss it, you know? And the interesting thing about my wife is that from the beginning, she was like, oh, you missed it. You know, I've learned something. Listen to me say this. All right, I don't want to be sacrilegious here, but, but listen to me say this. I remember somebody told me in that season of life where I felt like I couldn't hear the voice of God for anything, for squat. Somebody told me something um, very valuable that I've learned. They said, sometimes your wife is the best Holy Spirit you have. And uh, that was super formidable for me to, to learn that. So I go back, and we're disturbed. I'm just frustrated, you know, inside, just not sure. So I'm like, I'm going to call PD back. I'm going to have another conversation with him. She's like, okay, if he'll answer your call, you know, you've told him no. They probably moved on. Like, okay, so I call PD. He's a good friend. He answers, and we have a conversation. And I ask more questions, and we go through this whole thing. And I say, okay, let me put it to prayer. I'll taught him my wife come back to you. So I go and talk to Joy, put it to prayer. And I come to the place, and, and I call PD back, and for the second time, I told him no. I was like, PD, I know that you called me first and I said no, and then I called you and pulled you back into this, and then I said no again. I'm somewhat of a moron, so I'm sorry, you know. Um, I'll never forget the conversation I I had when I told PD no for the second time. I was on the golf course with my brother-in-law, who my sister and brother-in-law, we have a phenomenal relationship. They knew everything that was going on and have been praying with us and I was on the golf course and I, I hung up the phone with PD and I stood there for a couple of seconds. And I said, man, I just, I, would, I felt so sure. But I looked at my brother-in-law, Steve, and I said, man, but I, there's something, I just feel like I made the, the biggest mistake of my life. And my brother-in-law looked at me and he said, yep. And he proceeded to the tee box and teed off and didn't say another word about it, right? Those are the kind of guys you want in your life. No. So I said no twice, and I was like, dude, there's no way I'm calling this man back. There's no way. Even if they're going to look and be like, this fool thinks no. So I decided not to call back. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I get a phone call from somebody I've never heard of before. Pastor Glenn Burchett. Yeah. And uh, he says, hey, Corey, I know you don't know me, right, obviously, He says, but, you know, I serve on staff with Pastor Darren, and um, I I realize the conversation that's been going on. I realize you're torn a little bit, but I was wondering if I may make a trip to Panama City and come have a conversation with you. And I was like, okay. Like, I I mean, in my mind, I was like, are these people desperate? Like, what is going on? I can't believe. (laughs) After two no's, I'm moving on, baby. I mean, I'm not sticking around, you know. Now, there's a whole backstory to that between Pastor Chitty and Pastor Glenn that is phenomenal. I'd love to share with you one day. But anyway, they were hearing God when, when I wasn't. I really believe that. So Pastor Glenn jumps in the car, drives 500 miles to Panama City, eight-hour trip. And he spends a couple days with Joy and I. He comes in and listens to me preach and different things like that. We have a conversation. And... He, con- he didn't convince me, but he kind of convinced me that I need to make a trip. I need to put my boots on the ground in, in South Carolina and just experience. So as we came, I, I, need to, I need to make this clear before I move on. My hesitation was not going or stepping in to the future and what we felt like God had. My hesitation was releasing what was. Like that's where my major struggle was coming in. Um, but over the course of time, we we you know we had developed all these great experiences and, and everything in, with the church in Panama City. But listen to me, it, it wasn't like things had dried up for us. We were filled with vision. We had dreams. We believed, like Joy and I believed, our leaders, we believed that God was about to breathe a spiritual awakening. We really believed that. And we believed to the depths of our soul that he was going to start with us. We really believed that. And so we prayed that way and we prepared that way. We planned for things, man. We were, we were expanding before, you know, I know it's kind of common now for churches to, you know, do church plans and they start in schools until they can afford a building and stuff like that. Before that was ever popular, we were planting, we were on the path to plant youth ministries in local schools all throughout Bay County because we believed that God was going to do a profound thing. So it wasn't just like, oh, I'm I'm so nostalgic to to all of this. I was bound with a deep, profound love for these people. But it was also, I believe that there was a preferred future for them and for the church and for what God wanted to do. So it, it wasn't just this reluctance or fear to step into the future. It was this reluctance of stepping away from what was at some point. But through the process of time, when I felt like I couldn't hear the voice of the Lord, God sent so many confirming moments to Joy and I. Now, I'm not a person, I don't believe that, you know, we, we read about the fleece that was set uh, out before the Lord. And I, I don't really advocate, you know, setting fleeces before the Lord because I think we can set out fake fleeces and we can manipulate, you know, that, that so easily. Um, We can turn our alarm clock off and say, okay, Lord, if you don't want me to go to work at 5 a.m., you know, help me not to wake up. And so I sleep through, you know, till 10 o'clock in the morning. That's stupid. Okay, that's a fake fleece and that's manipulative. And so I don't really believe in in that, but I was so desperate at this point. I was like, Father, whatever you got to do, however you got to speak, I cannot hear anything right now in the spirit. I feel so spiritually dense, you know. And there were so many things. I had eight people, eight men in my life that were spiritual leaders for me. I consider them mentors. And all eight of those people, when they learned about the situation that we were going through, every single one of them said, we believe it's the will of God for you to go to South Carolina. I'll never forget um, that that day that Joy and I drove our family up here to meet um, the staff and to kind of put, put our feet on the ground. I'll never forget I had an opportunity to speak at a district council, and I was speaking on behalf of the next generation to a group of senior leaders and senior pastors, and uh, I was able to share things with them and everything. After that's done, I go and I stand at the door, and I'm shaking everybody's hand, you know, trying to honor. And uh, these men go through, and then this this older gentleman who's probably in his late 70s at that point, mid-70s, he comes through, and he's talking to me, and he's talking about all the things that he's experiencing in his life, and people that he knew, and people we may know in common, and as we're standing there, and he's asking me things, all of a sudden, he says, you know what? Now, I've never met this man in my life, right? And he says to me, he says, do you know a Stephen Chitty? And I was like, what is happening right now? Because up to this point, I mean, i The only way I knew who Pastor Chitty was was through, you know, PD and Pastor Glenn. I I mean, I'd never met the man, never had a conversation, anything like that. And so I'm like, well, actually, no, sir, I've never met him. But as soon as I leave this room, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to meet him tonight for the first time for dinner in South Carolina. What in God's name is happening, right? So he's like, oh, I love, you know. He called him Steve, and I love to. and he grabs a pen. He's like, would you give him this pen and tell him I said hello? And I'm like, absolutely, I guess. I'll do whatever you say at this point. So we get in the car, and we, we drive up here, and we show up here, and it's Word, Spirit, Power weekend, okay? See, you're laughing for a reason, right? If you've not been able to be a part of our Word, Spirit, Power conferences, um, let me give you a little bit of a glimpse. Um, there was a lot of supernatural activity that, I mean, there's always supernatural activity that happens here at Christian Life, but, but th- this, these conference, these meetings are just at another level. And, you know, I'm, I walk into the sanctuary and I'm stepping over fallen bodies and I'm ducking flags that are waving. And I mean, it was quite the experience. And even in the midst of that, the Lord spoke like, like a couple of things. I, I'm not going to go into detail, but God spoke so clearly about a couple of things to me. I didn't have like this dramatic encounter, but God so clearly spoke a couple of things that were so desperate and deep in my soul. He, he spoke just, so, just a couple of things there. We go to dinner after the conference and pastor was gracious and invited Joy and I to go uh, eat with the Word Spirit Power Team and the pastors at Yamato's, right, which is amazing, and he sits me down by R.T. Kendall. Now, t- yeah. to me, like up to that point, I had read R.T.'s books. I knew who he was. I mean, he was like a world-renowned theologian in my mind. In my mind, I'm like, this dude's famous. I'm sitting by a celebrity, you know. And I sit down and I introduce myself. And he says, well, I'm R.T. Kendall. And he looks at me only the way that R.T. can look at you. Okay? And it's frightening every time. Even if he says, I love you and care for you, it's frightening, you know? No, I'm kidding. And he looks at me and he says this. He says, so you're the one I've been praying for. And I was like, apparently, I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Through a series of these kind of events, it became crystallized in my mind that this is the will of God. And God has been gracious because I'm so emotional I'm so, you know, just distraught. I can't hear the voice of God. I'm emotional. I'm you know mentally incapacitated. I just I can't discern the voice of God. And God has been gracious and shown me this, and it's and it's crystal crystal clear to me. But even knowing the will of God that that we were to leave one thing to embrace another thing, even in the midst of all that, that summer was the worst experience that I have ever lived through. Up to this point in my life, it was the worst experience. It was months of the deepest, darkest depression I had ever experienced because I couldn't discern the voice of the Lord. I couldn't hear anything. I felt so dense. I felt like I should not be interviewing for a pastoral role. I'm gonna go like work at you know Sam's Club. I I I I can't discern anything that God is saying. I wasn't eating, I was losing weight, and I can't afford to lose too much weight. I wasn't sleeping. I mean, it was, it was just this, this blockade that was, that was filled in my soul. It was the darkest season I ever experienced. It was dark because I wanted to fulfill the will of God, but I've never wrestled with God to the degree that I did that summer. It was, it was, it was a very borderline traumatic experience for me as I, in, in my Christian faith. And so after we had met Pastor and we had come to an agreement and we were going to make the move to South Carolina, Later that summer, I was gonna finish out in Panama City another month and a half or two. And I remember having a phone call with one of my mentors and I was still broken. I mean, I was still just like, so just, I was, my soul was being eaten alive. And I was on the phone with him and I was crying and I said, I said, if this is the will of God, why does it feel like I'm dying inside? Why does it feel like this? I've committed, I said I would obey God. Why does it feel like death is just surrounding me, right? And this is what he said. I'll never forget it. I never considered it up to this point until he said this, but this is what he said. He said, Corey, you're in mourning. He said, when you made the decision that you were going to leave this and go to something new, he said, it's like that thing died in that moment. And you began to mourn the loss of that thing. Even though it's not quite over yet, you began to mourn the loss of that. And this is what he said. He said, here in a couple of weeks, you're going to preach your last sermon at this church in Florida. He said, that's going to be the funeral. And he said, and then for the weeks and the months that come, you're going to go continue to go through mourning. And then ultimately you'll go into recovery. And do you know that he was absolutely right? That is exactly what happened, and that is exactly what it felt like. I mean, I'll I'll tell you this, super vulnerable here. When we made the decision to move here, we moved here on August 1st, and we were welcomed, I mean, so incredibly, and, and just, I mean, it was an incredible experience. But I remember being here after six weeks. I had moved my family away from everything they had ever known, 500 miles And we had been living here for six weeks, and I remember coming home one afternoon, getting a shower as I prepared to go to another event that night, and I remember being in the shower and I wept because I was in such mourning. It wasn't that I was afraid of what was to come or even hopeful or had vision for what was to come. It was that I had not understood what it meant to truly mourn the loss that I was experiencing not forget what has passed, but to remember what has passed, to celebrate what has passed, to mourn what has passed, but also to release what has been passed so that I could embrace what was to come. I was still going to that. Even after I made the decision, after I moved my family, I was still going for that. And for months, that's the way that it was. But I'm going to tell you, there was a certain point, and I don't even remember when it it just switched. But there was a transition in my soul where as I went through the mourning process, I came to a place where I was thankful for what had passed, but I never wanted to go back to what has passed. It was so bizarre for me. Now, all of a sudden, my heart beat for the people of Christian life. My soul was thirsty to help the students at Christian Life experience God in a powerful way. I remember within a year of being here, I remember having a conversation with Joy, and I said, God, I hope we never leave here. I hope, I hope we live and die in South Carolina. That would be a dream of mine, right? But the reality is this, is that if I hadn't heard and heeded what my mentor had told me about the mourning and grieving process... Friends, listen to me. I could have so easily seen myself being stuck in the mourning process for years, if not for the rest of my life. And here's the danger in that. The danger is staying in a season of mourning is that you never fully release what was, and therefore your hands are not open to embrace what's to come. You can never fully make that transition into whatever God has for you. And so today what I want to do, I want to take the time that we have left, and I want to talk to you about the mourning process, okay? And again, I'm not just talking about, you know, the death and loss of, of loved ones. That's kind of over on the side. I want to talk to you about the death and loss of stuff and dreams and hopes and relationships and all of these type of things, What I do not want you to hear me say today is this. I don't want you to hear me say, well, suck it up, buttercup. Right? It's time to pick up. It's time to move on. Go into your destiny. That is not what I want you to hear. That's not what I'm saying today. I hope my tone doesn't communicate that whatsoever. But what I do want you to hear me say today is this. Is that in order for you and I to embrace what God has next for us, we must go through the process of mourning that which has passed. And if we neglect to do that, the future will be very uncertain, very difficult, and very unknown. Listen to me, mourning is part of the human experience. You realize we're, we're a composite being. We're, we're comprised of, of spirit, soul, and body. And our soul, the mind, will, and emotions, we have this capacity that is built for mourning losses. The Bible says that, yeah, there's a time, there's a time to celebrate and there's a time to dance, but there's also a time to weep and there's a time to mourn losses. The Bible helps us understand that we are built this way Because it is part of the human experience, it's part of the human condition. But if we shut that down and we don't choose to do things well and to mourn properly, we will be stuck in that which was, even though we're kind of living in the present. Let me tell you an example of this, a negative example of this, is the nation of Israel. So you remember, Israel is in captivity for 400 years, four centuries of time. Generation after generation, they're bound in slavery. Now, you and I would never consider Egyptian bondage to be home, right? I would hope we wouldn't consider it to be home. But in a strange way, I don't know if it was Stockholm Syndrome or what, but in a strange way, Israel had in some ways considered Egypt as kind of my home, and this is why. Because in Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time, in Egypt, there was safety. Now, they were beaten at times, and some of them were murdered, and they were doing backbreaking labor. But from other nations, there was virtually no threat to Egypt, and there was a, a safe haven for the people of Israel. They knew that they were slaves, but they also knew where their next meal was going to come from. They knew that in some ways, although they were abused, that in some ways they were going to be taken care of. And and though you and I would never consider their deliverance out of Egypt a loss, many people in Israel considered it a loss. They considered their deliverance out of bondage as if a loss, let me prove it to you. Numbers 14, this is what scripture says. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud and they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You understand that an entire generation, the Bible says, an entire generation of Israelites forfeited their destiny in the promised land. They forfeited that because they could not release what had passed. The Bible says their entire generation died out because all they wanted to do was go back to bondage. And so God had to raise up an entirely new generation so that they could possess and take the land. It wasn't that God was saying, listen, I need you to forget about the past and just get over it. No, he was saying, listen, if you, if you, if you were sad, if you were hurting, if you were going through difficult loss, you've got to learn to deal with that loss Because if you don't deal with that loss, you'll never make the turn and you'll never step into the destiny that God has. It's an incredible contrast to what Job does, right? Job mourns incredible loss, but he goes through 40-something chapters where he is processing and he's wrestling with God and he's dealing with this loss in the best way that he knows how. And so we need to take lessons from Job in this. And that in order for us to be all that God has called us to be and to be walk into the future that God has us to be, we have to be a people that learn when we go through losses to be able to process and mourn those losses, but also to release those losses so that our hands can be open for what's next. So for the last few minutes we have, this is all I want to do. I want to, I want to talk to you about the reasons that we mourn And I want to talk to you about different ways that are helpful that we mourn. And then we'll wrap up and we'll pray and and we'll be done. Amen? Amen. All right, that was good. Woke some of y'all up. That's right. Here we go. Sometimes we experience a loss, or excuse me, sometimes we experience loss in a loss of a loved one. Okay? Now, in my opinion, this is, again, this is kind of in this category. But in my opinion, this is the most devastating and difficult loss that a person can go through. It's a loss of a loved one. And the reason is is because of the finality of it. There's no going back. There's no retrieval. There's no visiting. There's none of that. It's it's one of the most difficult things. Um, This is why the Bible says when Jesus found out his friend Lazarus uh, had died, even though Jesus was going to raise him up, that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit, and he was deeply moved in his spirit It's because when we experience the loss of life, it's one of the most profound experiences that, that we could possibly go to through. Okay? So we're, we're not gonna deal with too much of that today, okay? Number two, though, the primary area I want to deal with is that sometimes we experience the loss of a dream or a desire. The prophet Isa- excuse me, the prophet Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet or the mourning prophet. The reason that he is called that is because Jeremiah, with his spiritual eyes, saw a preferred future for the nation of Israel. For Jerusalem, he saw a spiritual awakening. He believed that if the people would just turn from their idols and they would embrace the living God, that God would resuscitate their souls, that God would uh, send revival, that God would supply all their needs, that God was going to do a profound thing. But when the people of God did not turn from their idols and turn to God, there was utter destruction. There was an implosion in Jerusalem. And everything that Jeremiah believed and dreamed and hoped for all of a sudden was snuffed out. All of a sudden was snuffed out. And for the rest of Jeremiah's days, he's known as the weeping prophet. A man who would write a book entitled Lamentations, which is a lamenting of the soul. It's a mourning of the soul. The reality for all of us is this, is that if you live long enough, you're going to experience the death of a dream, the death of a desire. Some type of loss for a future that you always believed would come to fruition, but it just doesn't begin to happen. I'll tell you what, the pandemic robbed a lot of us of a lot of things. Some people, I know, lost their entire retirement. They had a preferred future and a vision for what life would look like. And they had built up financially so that they could walk into that destiny, what they felt like. But through the events over the past few years, so much of that has been wiped out, and now they have to reconfigure and recalculate and come up with something new. People lost jobs. People lost ministries. People lost people that they love and they care for. I'll tell you this. I had to go through a season for me uh, through the pandemic where I lost the dream of what our country is and what I hope the country my children would inherit. I had to come to a place I was so, like, my soul was just torn for months, two or three months. I just went through this. And I was like, there's got to be a way we can get back to who we were. When, when you know, I, hate, I sound old, but, but you know, when, when I was a child, the country was different. The country was better. It was this. And now I'm at a place where I realized, you know, a couple of years ago that the country's never going to be that way again. And my children, I mourn that my children are going to inherit a country that I don't even know. I had to go through the process of, it. listen to me. And I'm telling you, I know this sounds silly to some people. I had to let go of what I believed the future would look like. And I had to recalibrate and I had to say, no, that I believe that in some ways the best days are ahead because we're the people of God. But I also believe that some of the worst days still lie. And so we have to, you know, I, I had to, I had to release my ideal of what I envisioned to happen, go through that where I wasn't just angry and bitter, Work through that so I could say, you know what, regardless of my opinion, regardless of the politics or who should have done what or whatever the case may be, I'm going to choose to create a country that begins in my home. I'm going to do the very best that I can so that my children can inherit somewhat of a remembrance of who we once were. And so the pandemic robbed so much of us of so many things. But listen to me, throughout your life, you will. You will experience, like, like I've known people who all their life, they believe, um, you know, that, that maybe their career, their trajectory for a career would end up here, but something happened in the midst and they ended up doing something not even remotely associated with their dream, their vision. And those people, if we're not careful, when we experience those types of losses, if we are not careful and and, and deal with those properly and efficiently and mourn those losses to go into what's next, we may potentially go into that with anger, bitterness, unresolved issues. Okay? Now, let me say this about dreams and desires. We've got to be super delicate here. We've got to be super cautious and careful here because there will also be times where you experience a dream or desire that you feel like is dead, but it's not actually dead, it's just dormant, okay? It's just not the right time for God to bring this thing out. And so we've gotta be very discerning about those type of things. I'm reminded of like Hannah. Uh, the, The Bible says that her womb was dead, her womb was barren. And even as an older woman, she went and she had this dream of having a child. And, and she went before the Lord and she pleaded with God that, that, that he would resuscitate her womb. And ultimately, God did that. And I look at that and I say, that's incredible because Hannah didn't just embrace, well, my dream is dead. I've got to move on. No, she was a woman of God. She stayed in the presence of God and she was able to discern, God, is this something that's dead? Or is this just something that's delayed? And in her wisdom, she realized that it was just something that was delayed. And God was preparing her womb to be able to provide a mighty prophet for the nation of Israel. And so all I'm saying is, like, we've got to be really careful not to call something dead that's just delayed. Or something dead that's just dormant. We've got to make sure that we are prayerful and we don't just move from something because it didn't happen in the time that I felt like it should happen. But I will say this. If the dominoes are lining up and we get the sense that maybe maybe this is a loss in my life, we take it to the Lord and say, Father, if you're bringing closure to this, if you're bringing death to this dream, please confirm it however you say fit, and I will submit to that. And once we have that closure, we've then got to begin to release it and to process it so that we can move in to what we believe will be the future. I'll tell you this. Um, I remember going through a season with my wife and I. We have two biological children, and I remember going through a season just miscarriage after miscarriage. And we we were we were on birth control, and we were very active for like eight or nine years, and her womb could not hold life. And I remember getting to a place where I remember we sat down and we had this conversation about what does this look like because we, we can't just keep going through this. We can't just keep going through this, you know, these losses. And we, we sat, and this is what we said. We said, we're going to take the next 12 months and we're going to fast and we're going to pray and we're going to do everything in our power to be able to conceive a child because we believed that that dream was alive for us, that we were going to have another child. But at the end of those 12 months, we still couldn't conceive a child, Okay. And it was something that, it was a dream for us that had, had died. Now, now, I thank God. Like, you know, we, we do have two biological children. I celebrate that. I thank God for that. But we were at a point where we believed that God had more children for us. But the way that he was going to do it was different than what we had imagined. And, and listen, I say this so humbly because I know how delicate this is. Because I've walked through it. I know how, how delicate this is. So I don't want to misspeak. And I pray that you'll hear me when I say this. But... I cannot imagine life today without my three adopted children. I can't imagine life. But I'll say this, that I'm not so sure that the door for adoption would have ever been opened for us unless this door to carry and conceive would have been closed for us. And listen, I'm not saying please understand what i'm saying i hope you understand what i'm saying i'm just saying for us we had to process through this and release this so that we could in a healthy way walk into what was next and as much as it's tragic and, and the loss is still there and it stings sometimes i mean if you've gone through that you you exactly you identify with what i'm saying but i want to tell you the treasure that we have in our adopted children doesn't compare it doesn't compare And so I'm just simply saying that when we have the loss of a dream or desire, we've got to be super discerning and put it before the Lord. Lord, is this thing really dead or is it just delayed? Do you have something more for us? And until we hear a clear voice, we pursue that. You pursue, it's just like healing. It's just like until God says that he's not going to heal you, you pursue healing. That's just what we do, right? And in the same way, but when God begins to speak and say, no, that that is not for you, when he begins to do that, we've got to process that loss so that we can move into the future. Number three, sometimes we experience the loss of a relationship. David lost his mentor, Saul. David lost uh, his closest brother in Jonathan. Jesus lost one of his 12 in Judas, and sometimes the loss of a friendship or a relationship, sometimes this happens for a number of reasons. It could be betrayal. It could just, you know, you know sometimes when relationships end, because you just simply grow different, right? Now, I'm not talking about marriage, okay? You, that's a covenant relationship, very different. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about friendship. Sometimes friendships, you just grow in different. you start, you know, your kids are at a certain age when their kids are at a different age and you just, you just grow apart. Sometimes that's just what happens. But sometimes we lose friendships because of conflict, or because of fallout, or because of spiritual rebellion, they hate God now, and now you love the Lord, and so you just have to monitor who you're with, and, and, and you, you go through that way. But let me just say this, if you go through a divorce, or if you go through a loss of a friend, or a loss of a romantic relationship, those are relationships that you need to deeply mourn so that you don't step into the next relationship in a toxic manner, right? Right? I have Listen to me. I, I know the wound of this. I have, I have people in my life that I would consider to be spiritual sons and daughters in the Lord that no longer want to have a conversation with me because they're no longer walking with Jesus. And that is a wound, my friend. I mean, that is a deep, penetrating wound. But I've got to be at the mindset that though I care for them and I love them, our relationship looks different. I can remember and celebrate what it once was, but i got to process this thing and i got to release it so that I can move into other relationships in a healthy and a productive way. But I'm saying this, we've got to mourn those relationships, okay? But I'm going to tell you, this is what happens, especially when, when you know, we're in our teenage years up through you know, our 40s. This is what often happens, especially in like romantic relationships. Sometimes, instead of mourning a loss and releasing it and moving on, we oftentimes kind of camp out in this loss. And we'll keep sending texts. We'll keep the photos. We'll keep some line of communication open. Listen to me. If he has said no to you twice, baby, move on. Let it go. Mourn that loss. Release that loss. And then say, Father in heaven, the good father who is perfect and He is the father of heavenly lights and everything he gives is good and perfect gifts to his children. That's the guy that doesn't want you to hang on to all this in an inappropriate way, but wants your hands free so you can receive what may be next. I believe that. And so sometimes we go through uh, loss of, of relationships. Number four, very quickly, sometimes we experience the loss of stuff. Okay. Now, I do not believe that we should be lovers of money. I do not believe that we should be lovers of stuff or things, but I do believe that there are certain things that are so deep and dear to us that when we lose them, we need to mourn those things, okay? I'm just gonna be honest, okay? For the longest time, I never understood why people grieved the death of a pet. I never understood it. I had dogs growing up, but I was also a hunter, right? And my understanding was that all animals, they should be able to provide something, Okay, whether it's food or whether it's friendship or whatever the case is, they need to be able to provide something. And I could never understand until I became close with someone who went through the loss of a pet that was like basically like a child to them. And then all of a sudden my empathy rises and I understand and I want to I mourn with them through the loss. So, so those things, listen to me, just because you wouldn't grieve something doesn't mean that it's, it's invalid for somebody else to grieve it. Okay, okay. Um, there, you know, when, when a person goes through a job loss, we're all different. And some people, when you go through a job loss, you're just like, well, giddy up, let's go. And you go on to whatever's next, right? Some people are so excited about that. They just start leaving jobs left and right in persona. I don't understand it. Okay. But then there are some people like me who, man, if, if I ever had a a loss like that, it would devastate my soul. And I would really have to have to process and, and go through that. Job lost massive income. He lost his financial stability, not just for himself, but for his wife and for his children, for their futures. I read, I, I was trying to do some research and I couldn't find anything that was really solid. So this, I'm not even gonna give you the source because it's probably not even close to accurate. But I, but I, I read this article that this farmer had read. I think it was like from South Dakota or something like that. He had written this article about Job's losses. And he began to say, well, he had this many sheep and this many things. So in our economy, this is the the financial equivalency. And he like did all this math and he shows it out, written everything. And it was something like $56 million that Joe would have lost, right? Now, is that true? Maybe. Is it false? Maybe. But I will say this, he was an incredibly wealthy man that lost everything. And so as much as, or maybe not as much, but, but in part with him losing his children and servants and stuff, he lost stability. He lost financial income. And that's a very difficult thing. I remember um, uh, years ago when Joy and I were engaged, um, my, uh, my mom decided that she was gonna sell my childhood home. And now there were tremendous men- memories for me growing up, but I also realized that for my mom, there were not so great memories, Okay. And she needed to release that so that she could step into her future. But I'm going to tell you what, I grieved the loss of my childhood home. Every, almost without exception, every time we go home to Florida to visit family, almost every single time, I drive by that house. And I still, just my heart, you know, I just feel such a connection there. And people in my family, they don't necessarily understand it. They're like, oh, Who cares? But for me, it was was a major loss and I needed to mourn it. And so just because people, just because you don't understand why somebody's grieving doesn't mean their grieving is invalid. Okay, it's very, very important to understand. Number five, sometimes we experience the loss of functionality. Samson loses all his strength. His life implodes. Listen to me, as we get older, it is a scary and traumatic reality when we begin to lose functionality. When we begin to lose mobility, our independence, our eyesight, all of these kind of things, those are things, listen, those are, those are very difficult things to walk through. And so we must be sure that we walk through them in the right way. Okay? Now, so those are some of the things that, that we do that we mourn when we lose them. Okay? For the rest of our time, I want to talk about the ways that we mourn. And in Scripture here, they're, they're just a litany. Of different ways and manners that, that people can mourn. And I just grabbed a collection and I just want to run through these. And I do, again, want to say this, everybody grieves differently. And so you cannot expect someone, just because you grieve in a certain way, you can't expect someone else to just, you know. well, why don't you just do what I did? You can't always, it doesn't always work. We are unique individuals, our DNA is different, God has created this differently, and we've got to respect the different ways that people mourn. Um, here's, here's the trouble. If we do not mourn our losses, we may not make the necessary process or progress as it leads into the future. I remember one of my children, when um, we would, you know, wake them up. I got another one that uh, does the same thing. But when I would go get him, try to wake them up for school in the morning, right, I, I'd try to wake him up, and he would be like, <laughs> you know. Growling. Go away. Get up. It's time to go to school. Get dressed. Come back five minutes later. Shake them. Like, you know, and throw their leg outside of the bed. Okay. Walk away five minutes later. Leg still outside the bed. Drool coming off mouth. Get up. It's time to go to. Walling around the bed. But listen to me. This is what's happening. They're making a lot of movement, but they're making no progress right? And if we're not careful, if we're not careful when we experience loss, we continue to live like the children of Israel. They continue to live the rest of their lives. They were, there was a whole lot of movement going on, but there was no progress of moving forward. And so this is why God gives us the, the needed and necessary ways to mourn so that we can properly make the process that's needed, okay? So here we go. Number one, how we mourn. We mourn through emotion. Again, I revisited Jesus. He loses Lazarus. The Bible says that he weeps. The Bible says that he was deeply moved. He was troubled in his spirit. When we mourn emotionally, I believe that's the most human part of us. That's the most human way that we mourn. And sometimes when we have a loss of something, we experience anger or frustration or questioning And we kind of dismiss that as if it's ungodly, okay? And I just wanna say this, I wanna remind us that anger in and of itself is not evil. But when we sin in our anger, then it's evil. But anger is an emotion, sorrow is deep, it's penetrating. It's one of those things, and so when these emotions begin to rise to the surface, that is your natural humanness coming out, and it doesn't always just need to be dismissed. It doesn't always need to just be, "Oh, I'm angry, but I gotta get over it." Now, sometimes you need to sit in the anger for a couple of days, but at some point you also got to release that and you got to move into what's next. And so we 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 mourn um, through emotion. Okay, number two, we also mourn through physical expression. In ancient Jewish culture, mourning received a a ton of attention. When Moses and Samuel died and, and different varying other leaders, the entire nation shut down. For 30 days, the entire society stopped operating, and they focused on mourning the great men of God they were but releasing them so that they could step into what's next. They took a month and didn't do anything but weep and mourn their losses. And so as we look throughout scripture, you will see um, these physical expressions that came out in these seasons of mourning, right? You'll see uh, where, where people, they would beat their chest and they would tear their clothes and they would get dirt or ashes and rub it all over their head, or they would take their shoes off or remove their jewelry, wear sackcloth. I mean, just on and on and on. All these different types of expressions. And listen to me say this, God didn't frown on any of them. Because culturally, that was how you mourn. That is how you process. Nobody would ever look at a person who was wearing sackcloth and ashes and tell them to get up and get over it. Because the culture understood, no, they need to go through that so that they can become everything that God has intended them to be. And so we find ourselves in times where there needs to be a physical expression, right? And we usually do this like in the loss of a life. We do this through, you know, ceremonies or the spreading of ashes or uh, whatever the case may be, you know, even like a, our attire, you know, you're, you're never gonna walk, or you may, I don't know, but it's, it would be very rare if you ever walked into Christian life and there was a funeral service and somebody was just like ripping their clothes off, you know, out of anguish, well, it's because that was a different culture. For our culture, we do things like we wear all black. It's a sign of mourning. But in recent years, it's like, no, you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna you know, be depressed, I don't wanna wear all black, I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna express the life and celebrate the life of a person, and so they'll wear very colorful things. The point is, whichever way it lands, sometimes we need to physically express how we're feeling. Sometimes we need to get it out And sometimes we get it out through the means of spiritual expression. And in some ways, it brings a sense of closure to uh, that moment. Number three, very quickly, we can mourn through weeping. Now, David was mourning over his sin in this, but even that carries over as well. This is what he said in Psalm 6. He said, I am weary with my groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping, I had a, a friend one time tell me that the human, uh, the human body is, is, is created with three release valves, with three emotional release valves. Um, one of those is laughing, one of those is screaming, and one of those is crying. I didn't believe him, so I put him to the test one day. And when I was having a really frustrating day, I went to an auditorium kind of like this where I thought nobody was listening. And I just screamed at the top of my lungs for like five minutes. Not a big deal. I'll walk out of the room and there are other people there. It wasn't a good thing, but it released. It was, it was a release. And I'm going to tell you this, crying does that. Weeping, I mean, there, there's something that's released even when we go through that. And that is the way that God has created us. If the Son of God needed to weep in his loss, there are moments where we will need to weep in ours. Number four, we mourn through praying. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane does this. Number five, we can mourn through fasting. David and Abner, when Abner dies in battle, David mourns him by fasting and prayer. Number six, we mourn through journaling. Solomon, at the end of his life, looking back on his life with all his regrets, he's mourning the decisions that he makes. What does he do? He writes the book of Ecclesiastes. There's, there's a, a process there that's healthy for us as we're journaling. It just helps us to get our emotions out. Number seven, we can mourn through remembering. Um, You know, Scripture is, there are so many things that are about remembering, right? Um, We have altars that are about remembering encounters with God. Circumcision for men was all about remembering a covenant with God. The Lord's table or communion is all about remembering what Christ has done for us and remembering that there's a hope for the future. Um, All of these types of things. Um, A couple of weeks ago, a pastor was uh, officiating a funeral and, and I've heard him say this before, but, you know, pastor, sometimes he can say the same thing. And it's like, that is so profound. You know, it's amazing. Um, but he was officiating a funeral and, and he said this. He said, we may not be able to keep a person alive, but we can keep their memory alive by continuing to tell their stories. Right? And so sometimes... Um, it's, it's very healing to reminisce, like, you know, even going back, not the death of a loved one, but uh, the, you know, when we had to release Panama City, uh, the ministry in Florida, um, there are still times where we will gather together with people from that era and, you know, anytime if we go to Florida, they want to organize it or something like that. We'll meet at the restaurant, and for two or three hours, they just want to talk about how great things were and all these memories and all this kind of stuff. And we don't want to keep that alive, but we keep the memory of it alive, and that's a healthy way that we process uh, because it wasn't a bad or evil thing. And so sometimes we mourn through remembering our losses and telling the stories of our losses. And number eight and finally is this, is that we can mourn our losses through community, I would not want friends like Job had. Okay? Now, we'll say this. i got to say this about Job's friends. Uh, <clears throat> their theology was horrible. It was bad. Not good at all. But i got to commend his friends because the Bible says that when they heard of his losses and that he was going into mourning, that they all came to where he was. And the Bible says for seven days they sat with job and they spoke no words they spoke no words and the reality is that sometimes when people are going through seasons of mourning they don't need to hear how to fix it or how to get better or how to get over it or how to move on listen we've all had experiences and encounters and we i mean i know i've done it before but there are moments when somebody's going through mourning and you feel like you just got to fill the air by saying something, please don't do that because usually it's something stupid. Okay. I've done it a thousand times. So I've learned from Joe's friends. Vip, I'm not going to say anything. I may say, I love you, but that's it. I just sit there in the corner. I'm like, I love you. They taught to me. I love you. So that way I don't say anything dumb. Okay. The point is simply this is that we need a spiritual community when we go through our loss. And I'll say this. I'll say that if you wait until you go through a major loss before you begin to forge community, it will be a very, very difficult road for you. That's why it's important in the good times to forge community and to form relationships and to surround yourself with community so that when the difficult times that inevitably will come, you already have the structure in place and the established friendships that will help you walk through those things. Shameless plug for life groups, okay? So sometimes, all the time, I believe we need community to help us go through difficulty like this. But I just want to say this. We've got to respect that different people grieve differently. We've got to respect that. And we've got to honor them. Sometimes it's personality. Sometimes it's generational. But we've got to give people space to mourn in the way that they need to mourn. I was reading... um, years ago i read uh, cs lewis wrote a book called um a, a grief observed and basically he he journaled through the sickness and ultimately the death and the mourning that he went through in the loss of his wife and basically he took all that and he compiled it and and made it into a book called a grief observed and in the book he says as he goes to church or to a restaurant or whatever, and people know that he's had this major loss and he's going through mourning, he says, I see them coming towards me and I can tell in their mind what's going on. They're deciding, do I say something about her? Do I not say something about her? Do I say something about her? Do I not say something about her? And this is what he said, is profound. He said, the truth is, is that I hate it if they say something about her. And the truth is, I hate it if they don't say something about her. What he was really saying is that in mourning, your emotions are in an array. They're, they're just all over the place. And from moment to moment, you may not be able to articulate what you need or what you want. But you've got to understand, like, as the people of God, we've, we've got to give space for people to mourn in the best way that they, they see fit. Okay? Understanding we will never be able to, the ones to ultimately comfort and, and fix these things. I want to wrap up by sharing three last thoughts with you, okay? I'm going to ask our worship team. Our ministry teams can go ahead and step into place really quickly. I want to remind us, as as you've heard at at funerals and, and in Scripture, that when we lose people, we do not mourn as those who are without Christ. Why? because there is a promise that we're going to be reunited with them, all right? So when we go through the loss of people, we mourn, but we don't mourn in the same way because there there is a promise attached to that, okay? But when we go through the loss of things, whether it be relationships, dreams, all these kind of things, we also don't mourn the same as people who don't have understanding. Because what we realize in this caveat of the loss of a person, there's a promise attached, and we are going to see these people again one day. But when we lose stuff, sometimes it can be like, well, it just is what it is. But the reality is is that although um, uh, we've lost those things, that there's still a purpose attached. Because Paul reminds us in Romans 8.28 that you know so well that even in all this loss, that God is forming together a perfect plan, and he is going to work it out for my good. He's going to work it out for my good. And in our devastation, it can be very difficult to see that. But I promise you, if you will just trust God with it, if you will just lean into what he has next, you will come to a place where you realize that there is purpose in that pain. You will realize that but you've got to properly go through this morning and you've got to learn to release so that you can learn to embrace the losses as they come. You know who understood this so well? Job. Job understood everything that I'm talking about today. The Bible says this. Because Job learned to, to mourn well and he, he took all that time to process, the Bible says this. In Job chapter 42. In chapter 1, he loses everything. In 42, to conclude the book, this is what the Bible says. And the Lord restored Job's fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And listen to this. And so Job died An old man, but full of years. Now, God is not trying to say that He is going to double your losses. That is not what the text is communicating. He did that for Job and He may do that for you. But you know, that would be weird if you lost a relationship and a divorce and God provided you with two husbands. Okay, that's not, that's not, he's not gonna restore that, okay? But what, the point of what God is, is saying is this, is he's saying, listen, Job had tremendous loss, but Job went through the hard work of mourning and recovery, and Job realized that there's still life to live. There's still relationships. There's still purpose to be pursued. There's still dreams. There's still desires that God wants to fulfill through your life. But we must understand that we got, we got to deal with the loss as well so that we can step into what's next. Amen. Amen. stand with me really quickly, please. We're going to pray for you and release you. Father, this morning, thank you for the word of the Lord so much that it teaches us. it, It humbles us that you're so kind to deal with these most delicate places of the soul. And I pray today, Lord, if I've misstated anything or said something wrong or whatever the case is, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just make things right. And please forgive me for that. But I want to ask you today, Lord, that, that you will raise up among us men and women of God who learn this very important process of life. And Lord, you'll remind us that though sorrow may last through a night, sorrow may last for a season, difficulty may last for months at a time, but joy is on the horizon, and the purposes of God will be fulfilled in the lives of his children. And so Lord, would you instill that in us? Would you help us as we mourn these losses, not only right now, but even as we move into the future, help us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen.